On today's episode, a second act of our conversation with Sir Ian McKellen. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. In part one of our interview with Ian McKellen, he discussed playing Hamlet in his 30s and then again in his 80s. If you missed part one, you can find it on our website, folger.edu. Now, in part two of our extended interview, McKellen talks about playing Macbeth opposite Judy Dench in Trevor Nunn's 1979 production and playing Iago in a 1990 production of Othello, also directed by Nunn. But possibly McKellen's most famous Shakespearean role is that of Richard III. In the 1995 film version directed by Richard Longcrane, the action is set in the 1930s. Ian McKellen plays the title role as a delightfully self-aware villain. Was ever woman in this humor wooed? Was ever woman in this humor what? I'll have her, but I'll not keep her long. I, who killed her husband and his father, to take her in her heart's extremist hate with curses in her mouth, tears in her eyes, and then to win her. All the world to nothing. (laughs) McKellen co-wrote the screenplay for the film while touring in the Royal National Theatre's stage production of Richard III. Long before he became one of the most recognizable actors of his generation, McKellen studied at Cambridge alongside David Frost, Margaret Drabel, Trevor Nunn, and Derek Jacobi. Here's part two of Barbara Bogave's extended interview with Sir Ian McKellen. And now we're into the uh, name-dropping part of the conversation, which is uh, I talked to Derek Jacobi on this show about the issue of doing the, the big ones, like to be or not to be. And he said that you can always hear from the stage. You can always hear this collective inhalation from everyone in the audience right before you start their expectation. Do, do, is that your experience too? Well, I, I think uh, Hamlet's productions are often arranged about uh, taking the audience by surprise with that speech. And one way to do it is to put it much earlier uh, than, than where it's normally placed. You see, Hamlet is a play that gets partly written by each production. Yes, it's uh, it used to bother me, uh, but it doesn't really because you you can speak these speeches in such a way that people feel they haven't quite heard it in that way before, and therefore will have a fresh response uh, to it. But you know, it, it, you you also can see people sometimes uh, mouthing the words with you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like that? I think that would be very funny. No, I don't like that. My performances are always designed for people who haven't seen the play before. It's no help when a friend comes around, as they did to my first Hamlet, and said, congratulations, uh, you're our 73rd Hamlet. Uh, uh, I don't think there's any need to see Hamlet 73 times. (laughs) But there is a need to see it more than once. Uh, You know... If someone says, oh, I won't come see Hamlet because I've already seen another production, it's rather like saying, no, I I don't need a towel. I've already got one. Well, you, you can... Hamlet's 
you know, it, it's a play you might respond to in a different way as you get older. There are lots of people of different ages in, in the play and they've all got a point of view and uh, perhaps you become more sympathetic to the older characters as you get older. I think Not that's true my... of all Shakespeare's plays, that you respond, because yes. you, you pay attention to different characters as you age, as you as you grow or as you come mm. at it from a different moment in your life. If you, st- if you, if you start as a director by saying, how can we make this play available to a bright 14-year-old who's prepared to give us two or three hours of their precious time, rather than saying, oh, everybody knows this play, how can we make it different? It won't inhibit. You'll still get productions which have a different emphasis and a different attitude and a different style, and that's absolutely fine. But I think it should always be done with a new audience in mind. Derek Jacobi also said he was a terrible Macbeth because the play doesn't give us any motivation for the murder of Duncan. So do you do you agree? Uh, no, I, I didn't find any problem with um, Macbeth eventually deciding to murder his boss. He's urged to do it by the woman on whom he depends emotionally, who he loves. They're the golden couple, and uh, they're just fatally ambitious, uh, and the whole point, really, of, of, of Macbeth's character is that from the word go, he is uh, indecisive, not as a soldier. He, he He's yet another soldier in Shakespeare who is brilliant on the battlefield and useless in politics. Coriolanus would be another prime example. Richard II, Richard III is a wonderful soldier and a a dreadful politician. Um, Macbeth knows what he's doing and and has long discussions with the audience as to whether he should do it or not and what would the result if he did. And he gears up, screws his courage to the sticking place as his wife instructs, and on her behalf and his own, he kills the king, and immediately regrets it and spends the rest of his the play trying to believe that he did the right thing when he knows he didn't. So it will make us mad. I thought I heard a voice cry, sleep no more. Macbeth does murder sleep. The innocent sleep, sleep that knits up the revel, sleeve of care, the death of each day's life, sore labour's bath, balm of hurt minds, great nature, second course, chief nourisher in life's feast. What do you mean? Still it cried, sleep no more, all the house glams hath murdered sleep, therefore Cordor shall sleep no more, Macbeth shall sleep no more. Who was it that thus cried? Why, worthy Fane, you do unbend your noble strength to things so brave and sickly of things. The, the reason that our production was so good and remains so good, because it's still available on, on uh, DVD recording, is that it was played in a very small theatre. And we didn't interpret it. We presented it. And the words in that play and the actions are so startling and horrific at times that an audience is swept up, particularly if you play in a small theatre, close to the audience, where they can see the blood on the murderer's hands, and you play without an intermission for two hours as Macbeth and his wife descend into hell, really. This is reminding me of another thing that you said uh, that you learned while doing a different play, Lear, that developing a backstory isn't helpful with Shakespeare. 
uh, and so many Shakespearean actors have told me that it is for them. Um, but uh, besides the fact that this wasn't the, a psychoanalytical age when Shakespeare was writing, why doesn't backstory work with Shakespeare for you? Well, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't. The first word in uh, Richard III is now. Now is the winter of our discontent. And Shakespeare's plays are happening in front of your eyes now. And he has this technique where sometimes uses a chorus to tell you what's been going on, but things have been going on. And you're in the middle. The play starts in the middle of life now. And for an actor to worry too much about how come at 80 he's got three daughters and could they have had the same mother, Queen Lear, and where is she? She's never mentioned. Oh, did he have two wives? And did the second wife die in childbirth? And, and this Cordelia now of an age and looking like her mother when King Lear fell in love with her and married her? Well, you can invent all this, but it won't really advance what the audience sees in the story. He's not interested in the mother or mothers. I used to wear two wedding rings for the alert, but it, it doesn't matter. Now, it might matter to the actor. It might make it easier for the actor to remember the mother of Cordelia as he looks into the young girl's eyes. Hmm. But you can't start explaining all that to the audience. And, and if Shakespeare wanted you to, he would have put in the scene, the speech, the reminiscence, which would have made uh, for that clarity, which sometimes, we, 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 as actors, we can feel we're missing. So you just have to say, now. So you approach it like a fairy tale, really? And get on. But it is. Well, and an, it another is. way. Uh -huh. Yes, I think that's it is. They are. And I've often said, once upon a time, and now we start. If you're playing King Lear, you think, what sort of a king have I been? Have I been a good king? Well, my daughters seem to think that I wasn't a very good king, and, 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 and the fool is there to add criticism of Lear to the story. But reliable people like the uh, of Kent think King Lear's the bee's knees and are utterly devoted to him. And Gloucester, too, two basically good men, uh, absolutely devoted to the king. So what was it that they were devoted to? Not, not this man who shouts at his daughters and makes foolish political mistakes in front of their eyes. Was he a, perhaps a great warrior king or was he a priest king? He believes... Initially, anyway, in the power of the of the gods, who he's always talking to and 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 claiming to represent on earth, divine right of kings, but uh, it doesn't help to say uh, I was a great warrior king because that's not part of the story. But you do note that he 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 hits people a couple of times. He hits people. Perhaps that's because he hit them very successfully on the battlefield, I used to think. But again, you can make up these stories and they can help. And, and 
boost your confidence as you're as you're trying to uh, understand what's going on. But better to concentrate on what is going on than what has has gone on. I think. Well, picking up on your Richard, you started now as the winter of our discontent that speech, and you later. Uh, adapted Richard III for the screen after doing it on the stage. And you said it in the 1930s, rise of fascism. um, And one of the all-time favorite, my favorite beginnings of a Shakespeare screen adaptation, besides starting with a huge tank pretty much coming through a wall. Uh, in an attack, you do begin this famous soliloquy, now is the winter of our discontent, at a a ball. You're giving a speech. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. (laughs) And all the clouds that flowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean, buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths. And and then you zoom the camera in on your your Hitler stash, your your mouth, as you say, grim-visaged war has smoothed his wrinkled front. And then there's a jump cut to you taking a leak in a urinal in the bathroom as you finish the thought. Grim-visaged war has smoothed his wrinkled front. And now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fight the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. So it's this wonderful progression. Could you tell me how you developed your staging of, of, well, ev- of ev- every Richard will tell you that the, the first speech is broken. Halfway through, it changes its direction. It begins as a public declaration to the audience. Uh, it's a soliloquy. He's on, on stage by himself. We changed that and, and uh, found it easier to deliver the speech to the audience of, of courtiers uh, rather than the audience through the lens. And, and halfway through, uh, what is clearly a, a public speech and the public face of the reasonable, enthusiastic younger brother of the new king, and it's only halfway through that he reveals his own ambitions to become king himself, and that's much more private. And, uh, well, you can make that change in, in your point of view as, as you're speaking it to a, a live audience in the theatre, but changing the location to the most intimate place of all, uh, well, if, if not the bedroom, then the, the bathroom, uh, seemed to be just making Shakespeare's case that so the first part is public and the second part is more intimate. And you were doing this role on stage first, and right? And, and I, were you working on writing the film adaptation pretty much at the same time? I mean, it seems as if you must have split yourself in two. Well, I suppose we'd been playing the play on and off here and there through Europe and the United Kingdom, and we arrived in North America, and and it's while we were there playing, I think, six cities that I tried to see if I could write a a screenplay, which was basically cutting the text. 
not reimagining it because Shakespeare is often cinematic in the way that one scene follows immediately from another. Uh, it's almost as if he'd invented the jump cut. One scene ends uh, and another begins immediately, and that can happen very effectively on screen in a way that uh, is difficult sometimes on stage. Before that, I was, I was rather pleased. You do see Richard completing the, the, the civil war by, by killing the current king, his enemy, and making way for Richard's brother to become king. And after that, there was a party of celebration, which Richard eventually interrupts with his first speech. But I think you're we're seven minutes into the film before anyone has said a word. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was rather good because the one thing people must be frightened of when they go and see a Shakespeare film is, oh dear, there's going to be a lot of stuff that I don't understand. Uh, and and I, I hoped in this case, after seven minutes, they, those very same people would be saying, when is someone going to speak? Uh, so that they were ready for the speech uh, when it arrived. And as I say, the first word of it is now. Uh, and that could uh, reassure the audience that they were in the right place uh, <laughs> and that something was going to happen. And uh, But uh, when I went in to kill the king wearing a gas mask so that my face couldn't be seen, I was breathing heavily, but my breathing was beating out the black verse rhythm. Huh. So, the first thing out of Richard III's mouth in our film is a demonstration of the blank <laughs> line. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that. Yeah. Your Richard is really antic. I mean, he's kind of madcap, and there's this wonderful bright swing music that emphasizes this slightly um, lunatic mood. And then in the last shot, you have your diehard moment. Your evil Richard lets himself fall backwards from the top of a building into into flames yes. below, and and you are you are smiling like a demon, or perhaps laughing. Yes. What 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 was yes. your thinking and, there? And well, uh, just to add to what you were saying, we filmed that in in the Battersea Power Station, which is very close to the new American Embassy in London. Uh, has recently been renovated now, and so it's uh, no longer a power station making electricity, but it's uh, housing for rich people. But in, in its ruined state, we, we did the battle there, and, and uh, not I, but someone looking like Richard, uh, threw himself off. Uh, and I heard recently got paid more for doing that than I got paid for the entire film. And qu quite right. I, quite right, I he deserves played, it. Uh, well, I may have played Richard, but I wasn't going to kill myself, uh, risk killing myself. Uh, and and as Richard is, is escaping from his nemesis, Richmond, the man who's going to kill him and become king himself, Henry VII, in the stage version, they fight. Uh, and, and Richard loses. In our version, they're firing at each other, and Richard sees the inevitable and throws himself off, commits suicide. And as he does that, Richmond, the future king, aims and fires pointlessly. Mm. Richard is definitely going to die. But Henry VII can then go down to his troops and say, I killed the king. 
and the audience will know that he didn't, and the audience will may therefore say, oh dear, I wonder what this new king is going to be like. Just as at the end of Macbeth, you wonder, oh dear, I wonder what this new King Malcolm is going to be like, you know, with all his problems. And, and Richard Longcrane, the director, put underneath Richard as he's grinning and falling to inevitable death, I'm sitting on top of the world. I'm sitting on top of the world. I'm rolling along. And I was worried about this. And when... Why? Because it was maybe too much or what? Well, I, I, I thought to, to come suddenly with a, a popular song from a, a different genre of storytelling, and I, I didn't really know why Richard wanted to use it. Uh, I thought it put the wrong seal on the whole thing. And Annette Benning's husband, Warren Beatty, was attending filming in the background. And I talked to him about this. And he said, but that's Al Jolson. Al Jolson was the first man ever to be heard speaking in a movie. It was he who created talkies. And if Richard III is anything, it's a talkie. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> you're paying tribute to the first performer ever to um, have a success uh, in a speaking movie. So I, I took comfort from that. I think it's a very smart comment. Whenever that man opens his mouth, something smart comes out. You played this other great, one of my favorite great villains, Iago, uh, in another Trevor Nunn production for the RSC, uh, which was filmed. Yes. And what I think is is so remarkable about it is that in the very first scene, you establish absolutely who Iago is. I follow him to serve my turn upon him. We cannot all be masters. Your own masters cannot be truly followed. You shall mark many a duteous and meek, shocking knave who, doting on his own obsequious bondage, wears out his time, much like his master's ass for naught but provender, and when he's old, cashiered. <sighs> Whip me such honest knave. Others there are who trimmed in forms and visages of duty. Keep yet their hearts depending on themselves. And such a one I do profess myself, for so it's as sure as you are Roderigo. Were I the moor, I would not be Iago. <laughs> in following him, I follow but myself. Heaven's my judge, not I for love or duty, but seeming so. On my peculiar end. And to me, he seems to embody the idea of the banality of evil in, in your production. And in other productions, I have such trouble figuring out, wait, wait exactly why is he so evil? Is he just, like, born that way? Um, but in, in your, your Iago, he seems very low and very common. Um, and you've chosen an accent for him. I'm not British, so I don't know what it is. But who were you modeling him on? And how am, am I completely off base? No. Uh, the accent I was using is, is, is my native one, an all-purpose northern accent. Uh, I think the point was that uh, Iago is a non-commissioned officer. He's not one of the knobs. You know, he's not, he's not been to the 
the, the posh military academies, he's worked his way up as right. a working so, soldier. And he resents the people who have. And it's very, there's a lot of class yes, going on. There, yeah. Yes, yes, there is. And you could imagine a man like that looking at this black man who's come in and is now his boss, feeling that he didn't like that. But Iago's a very, very easy part to play and be successful in. He is wicked. You said evil. I'm not sure about, I'm not sure what evil is, actually. I don't think we're born evil. I think we, we might grow up to do dreadful things, but I, evil, I don't think, is visited upon us. It's, uh, it just emerges. It's, I don't believe in the devil. Uh, so he's, he tells the audience exactly what's on his mind and exactly what he wants to do and why he wants to do it. He doesn't like his boss because of the color of his skin. He's jealous because he suspects that Othello has seduced uh, Iago's wife. He, he's annoyed with Othello because he, Iago, was overlooked and, and what he thought was going to be his new promotion was given to another soldier. And he, he just reveals not an evil man, but a, a, a man who's very unhappy and je more jealous than anybody else in the play and uh, coping against the odds with a wife who he seems to be estranged from. They hardly speak to each other. But when he's not talking to the audience, audience and telling the truth about himself, as all everybody does in Shakespeare when they speak to the audience in the soliloquy, no character lies in the soliloquy. It's in the rest of the play that Tiago is lying. And all you have to do in the rest of the play is play the nicest man possible. Thank you, Iago. Do you think so, Iago? Could you help me, Iago? I've got a problem, Iago. Please, Iago. And, and he's the good old reliable guy, the northerner who will put his arm around you and sort it out and tell you not to worry and fulfill his destiny to be everyone's friend. And then he turns to the audience and says, they're all fools. Well, that actor playing Iago who tries to tell the audience in the scenes with other people what his real feelings are is will never get anywhere. You, you simply play a nice man and then when you're talking to the audience you play an honest man and the honesty reveals uh, his motives. No, I don't think he's evil. I think he's just sick. Huh. Well, we're almost out of time, so I have to ask you, Gandalf, uh, is there a single question you haven't been asked about your role as, as Gandalf? Uh, and is there any Shakespearean angle at all to explore? I mean, is there an element of Prospero embedded in Gandalf? Oh, yes. Well, I'm sure um, Tolkien, as a very well-educated Englishman in the beginning of the last century, would, would know Shakespeare and have read him and have seen him. But no, I think he invented his own sort of storytelling, which predates Shakespeare. I think it goes back to the uh, 
pre-Renaissance sagas, you know, spoken around their fire, uh, passed on from generation to generation about the history of the tribe. And and I, I think that that's more Tolkien's, where Tolkien's style of writing comes from, uh, rather than from uh, the theatrical way in which Shakespeare tells his stories. But it 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 was it was useful, I think, uh, in playing Gandalf, who has very lively ability to 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 take over a situation and provide the answers and encourage other people to follow him, because in Shakespeare often you have to stand up and rally the troops, or lose your temper and 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 make your case and. Uh, Gandalf has to do that a number of times, and I, I, I felt, oh, I've done this before in, in other stories. But hmm. otherwise, I, I didn't really think of Shakespeare once whilst we were doing it. It has been so delightful talking with you, and I'm so looking forward to seeing that Hamlet. Oh, Barbara, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, you must give my best wishes to everyone at the Folger, you know, one of the great institutions, which is... Uh, a joy to, to to visit, and I have appeared. I have appeared on on that little stage. It was Shakespeare's birthday, April the twenty third. I gave a half hour Shakespeare uh, entertainment. I hope, and was then led with everybody else over to the White House to listen to President Reagan give a speech in praise of the Folger Library and Shakespeare. And he said, and it's very moving. Holding up a, a copy of Shakespeare, he said, if only we could really understand everything in this book, what a better place the world would be. Well, it wasn't long after that that I saw a replay of, of, of Reagan on the campaign stump, and he was out down in the southern states of uh, the USA, and he was holding up a book. This time it was the Bible. And he said, you know, if only we could understand every word in this good book, what a better place the world would be. Well, I suppose if you've got a good line, use it. <laughs> oh. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a delight to talk with thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for your lovely questions and your interest. It's very indulgent. Thank you. <laughs> It was a joy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Keep an eye out for release details of Sir Ian McKellen's performances in the Theatre Royal Windsor's production of Hamlet, as well as the essay film Hamlet Within. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Rob Double at London Broadcast and Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at Three Seas, Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on your podcast platform of choice. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library, home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about The Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. 
For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.